Amen. Good singing tonight. Welcome to our uh, school time setup for our chairs. We encourage everybody to get to know one another really well. So uh, that's we've got you all here in the middle tonight where I can keep my eye on you. So I can see very well if you're going to sleep and what's happening back there. So I'd like you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, if you would, please. Ephesians chapter 5. And I hope you've discovered so far that as we've studied in this fifth chapter, that this is really a great chapter about Christian living. Paul tells us all these different kinds of things that Christians ought to stay away from. And then he also tells us things that we need to do in order that we would be pleasing to God and how that our lives can be fulfilled. We wonder, how how can Christians be happy when there's so many things that are going wrong in the world and seems like things happen in our lives all the time? How can we demonstrate a life of contentment? Well, we find it right here in this fifth chapter as we close out the chapter uh, in the next few weeks, talking about the filling of the Spirit and the demonstration of the Spirit's filling. And whenever you are filled with the Spirit, you will be a content person. So this message is the second part of the one we began last week about the filling of the Spirit and how that shows in our Christian lives. We're going to read tonight from Ephesians chapter 5, so if you'd stand with me, please. We're starting with verse number 18. We'll read down to verse number 21, Ephesians 5, verse number 18. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. Just ask you, Lord, you'd help us to uh, study and learn uh, and use something here that we can apply to our lives. We just thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We noticed in our study last week, in verse number 18, that Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit. And we see here that Paul did not immediately launch into some kind of explanation about the demonstration of the filling of the Spirit and how that's shown by all different kinds of sign gifts that God has given us. There are many people who look at this scripture and they think about Ephesians 5.18. The first thing that comes into their minds is Paul must be talking about these special gifts that you get, about healing and speaking with tongues and all these different kinds of things and prophecies. But we notice that Paul doesn't say anything about that at all. Now, those that are involved in charismatic churches today would have you believe that speaking in tongues was something that was very common among New Testament Christians. And the way that people demonstrated that they were filled with the Spirit was they spoke in these special ecstatic languages. But if we look at the New Testament just a little bit closer and investigate it, we find that in the book of Acts that has to deal with the power of the Holy Spirit in the church, that Speaking in tongues was really not a common thing among New Testament Christians. In fact, as we look at the book of Acts, there are at most three instances, probably only two, where the Bible says that anyone in the entire book of Acts spoke with tongues. Back in the first century, the use of tongues was was already dying out. And finally, at the end of the, uh, the first century, when the apostles had died and when the scriptures were completed, there's practically no demonstration of any types of these kinds of things all the way through Christian history, all the way up to the 20th century. And so if the demonstration of the filling of the Spirit was speaking in tongues and these special sign gifts, then 
nobody had the filling of the Spirit for almost 20 centuries until the charismatic Christians came along. Well, the fact of the matter is that those particular sign gifts are really not the filling of the Spirit. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. He gives us evidences and he gives us consequences of the filling, but he says nothing at all about those particular sign gifts. But Paul does tell us something here. He, he does give us some information about the demonstration of the filling of the Spirit. Last week, we began talking about the inward experience of filling, and that's the filling of the Spirit that begins to work in your heart. And, and Paul equates it here with making melody in your heart to the Lord. In last week's lesson, we talked about music, and Paul speaks here about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And a person who is a spirit-filled Christian will find out that these, these kinds of, of singing, these songs, these hymns, these spiritual, the spiritual songs begin to well up in his being. He begins to bubble over in these things, and he really wants to sing to the Lord. So a spirit-filled Christian is a singing Christian. A happy Christian is a singing Christian. And it really doesn't make any difference if you sound like a bullfrog when you sing and, or, or you can't carry a tune at all. God's not really interested in the sound of your voice. What he's interested in is do you have a heart that really wants to praise him, a heart that really wants to sing? Is there joy deep down in your heart? We talked about last week the functions of music, why God gave us music. And what stands out most of all, or should stand out most of all in our minds, is this purpose, that God has given us singing and songs and all of these different things for worship to Him. I mean, all of this is to exalt and to glorify God. And so if our songs are going to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ, then they have to be songs that have a good spiritual meaning to them. They must have biblical words. It must speak the truth. And so to have uh, uh, the right kind of songs, we have to have those that magnify Jesus Christ. And then our singing is also for fellowship with others that are Christians. I mean, when you're, when you're down and, and you feel bad and things are going wrong, singing is something that lifts our hearts up and makes us glad and happy. And so God wants us to be, again, singing Christians. We don't sing to fill up sensual appetites. We sing in order to magnify God. So we always have to keep this in mind, that music that honors God is also music that will bless his people. Whatever blesses God's people or blesses God also blesses God's people. So that's what happens when you have the, the filling of the Spirit. That's the inward experience. There's rejoicing in song. And once again, if you're a Christian who doesn't have a song in your heart and you're not happy over what's happened to you in salvation and you don't feel like singing, then you've missed something as far as the filling of the Spirit is concerned. But that inward experience, that's not the only demonstration that Paul talks about here. I want to move on tonight, and we're going to talk about the second way that filling with the Spirit is demonstrated in a Christian's life. So secondly, is the upward exaltation of filling. The upward exaltation. And we find that in verse number 20, where Paul says, "...giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." So here's what happens when the Spirit of God fills you. It will put you in a constant attitude of thankfulness. There's always this deep felt sense of appreciation because of what God has done for you, how he's worked in your life. And I suppose that the measure of thankfulness would be dependent upon how people believe that they receive their salvation. If you don't understand fully how salvation came to you, then you really don't understand fully how to thank God for what you've received. 
If you believe that your salvation is a result of a cooperative effort with God, that salvation is synergistic, which in effect means that you had a part and, and, all, and then that you are partly responsible for your salvation, then it only makes sense that the thing for you to do is split your thanksgiving between God who did something for you and you who did something for you. So let's talk about that for just a few minutes. First of all, let's speak about the meaning and the attitude, meaning and attitude in thanksgiving. What you know about salvation and how you receive salvation is displayed in your attitude about it. Now, if you wonder why there are some people who are more thankful about their salvation than others, then we could probably find it right here. How do they believe that salvation came to them? Now, there's basically three different attitudes that we find in Thanksgiving. The first attitude is, I deserve what God gives. I really don't need to be overly thankful because I deserve what God gives. Everything that I have, everything that I've received, I deserved it. And there are many people who have that I deserve it attitude. And many of these people are, in fact, very religious people. And they rejoice in their, in their own self-righteousness. And they love to point that out. They pride themselves in what they've done. The best example of that we can find is in uh, Luke chapter 18. Jesus is talking about the Pharisee and the publican there, if you remember. And he says, two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, you notice in this man's speech here that he does exhibit some thankfulness because he starts out by saying, God, I thank you. But then he starts talking about all the things that he'd done for God rather than what God had done for him. So he starts speaking about all these things. He talks about, I keep the law, I obey commandments, I'm not unjust, I don't have any sins. And he talks about all these things that he's done and he goes on and on and he extols all these virtues. And those obviously, he thinks, make him worthy of God's blessing. And so in effect, he says, God, I deserve what you give. And so in reality, I thank you for what you've given, but surely I have to thank myself as well because I complied with everything that you said, God, and I went even beyond what you've asked me to do. The rich young ruler who came to Jesus thought essentially the same way. He was a very religious man, and when he came to Jesus, he, he talked about all the good deeds that he had done, and he thought, surely these are the things that will make me worthy of salvation. And do you know that is the attitude of much of the religious world today? Whenever you try to set up a system of laws and commandments by which you can be saved, things that you do in order to be saved, then you have to glorify man. Because you'd never receive the blessings under that system unless you did something and God deserves the blessings that he gives you or you deserve the blessings that God gives you because of the work that you've done. Well, the truth of the matter is that God never shares his glory in salvation. Paul made that very clear in Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. He said, Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. So he points out to us, salvation is by grace, and if it is by grace, that means that there can't be any work of any kind that
that man can add to that in order to be saved. So when people believe that salvation is cooperative, what they actually do is make faith a work of man. Now, they will say, well, you can't, you can't contribute anything to your salvation, but your response to this is faith, and therefore your faith is a thing that you actually uh, use in order to, to obtain salvation. Well, when you talk like that, if salvation is a cooperative effort, then logically the faith has to come from man because that's the only thing that he's producing and, and giving to the equation. So that's exactly what happens then when you place repentance and faith before regeneration. Faith becomes a work. And so that leads to pharisaical statements like, Thank God I had the good sense to believe. And do you know that's an exact parallel to Luke chapter 18 verse 11? The Pharisee says, God, I thank thee that I am not as some other men are. And then we could add there, they didn't have the good sense to believe. Well, if that's how you think that salvation comes, it's my cooperative effort with God, then God is not the one who deserves all the praise and all of the thanksgiving. And so, therefore, the thanksgiving is diminished by the self factor. But on the other hand, if I know that there's nothing in me, I am totally undeserving, I'm an object of God's grace only because that was purposed in God's will, if I understand that God had me in mind before I was ever born, before I could ever do anything that was good or evil, then I begin to understand that whatever I have must come from God. Without Him, I can do nothing. And even by even the faith by which I trust Him, that's something that's given by God. And if He didn't give me faith, I would never believe in Him. So the meaning behind your attitude makes all the difference in the world about how you give thanks to God. So there are some who say, I deserve what God gives. And the way they believe salvation is received will determine how much they're thankful to God for it. But then there's a second attitude about thanksgiving. And this is the attitude that says, I deny that God gave it. Whatever blessings are received, these people don't believe that God has anything at all to do with it. And that's the attitude of the self-made man. I earned what I have. I worked for what I have. Nobody helped me get here. I did all of this on my own. Doesn't the world even applaud the self-made man? Of course they do. And they look at this as if God is just a bystander, that God didn't put everything in place to make it work out exactly as it should in order for you to succeed. Jesus gives an example of this kind of person also. If you have your Bible there, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, verse number 16. Luke 12, verse 16. And this is the parable of the rich farmer who sowed his fields. And the harvest came and he reaped bountifully, but he never stopped to thank God for it. Look at verse 16 in Luke chapter 12. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully... And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose... Who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So here's a man who planted a crop. When the time of the harvest came, 
His fields brought forth so abundantly that he was unable to collect it all and to hold it all. He didn't have enough barns to store it all. But here's a man who never stopped to thank God. He never thought about what God had done for him, and he never even thought about giving some of what he had to others. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought for just a minute because we're going to come back to it a little bit later. But this man did not think about who sent the rain for his crops. He didn't think about who provided that good soil for them to grow in. He said nothing at all about the sun that God gave to help those crops to grow. Instead, all he was interested in was what he had and not giving thanks to God at all. So the Bible says here that this man was sorrowful because he didn't have room for everything that God had blessed him with. Now, Matthew Henry has a very insightful comment on this. He says, he afflicts himself with this thought. What shall I do because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? He speaks as one at a loss and full of perplexity. What shall I do now? The poorest beggar in the country that did not know where to get a meal's meat could not have said a more anxious word. And so he looked at all that he had and he never stopped to thank God. Doesn't that sound like most Americans today? People are stepping all over themselves, making more and more money all of the time. We live in the richest country of the world. Most of us have two or three cars. We have fine houses to live in, markets that are filled with food, everything that the heart could possibly desire, and yet we don't stop to thank God about it, for it. Things get better and better and better, but we don't thank God. And if we do get into an attitude of thankfulness, who do we thank? Oh, we thank politicians because they have such good economic policies. And that makes things so good in this country. Or we thank ourselves because we are so industrious. We're, so, we're such hard workers. Thank ourselves for what we have. But who stops to thank God? And so instead of making God prominent in everything that we do, what's happening in America, we keep shoving God out the door. I mean, more and more, we're, we're trying to push God out of all areas of society. Now think about this. Our forefathers came to this country and they thanked God for what they had. But folks, we're more interested in punishing people who have faith. I mean, today we have to have organizations like the Christian Law Association that that protects our freedoms that were first of all granted by God, then codified in American law by those who gave us the Constitution. And, And we have to have those kinds of organizations. I related, I've related this story several times to you about uh, when I was working in Florida. I was there by myself for about a year. My family was here, and uh, so I spent a lot of time by myself. I went to church by myself. But after church on Sundays, I, w- I would always go to a restaurant there in Florida to eat. And I noticed right away how, f- how much different it is eating in a restaurant there than it is eating here. When you sit down to a meal there in a public place, there are people all around me that are bowing their heads and they thank God for their food. But here, when do you see people doing that? I mean, that's a rare occasion when you see people in a public place in a restaurant thank God for what they have. Instead, they get their meal, they wolf it down, and they never give a second thought about God who provided all that for them. In July, when we were in Kentucky, we... uh, We were there on a Sunday, and uh, after church, we had a rather large group with us, and we went out to eat, went into a restaurant there, and uh, the owner, or the the manager of the restaurant, uh, came up to our party, and he sat down there and talked with us for a while about church and about our faith, 
and uh, thanked us for being there and all of that and respected what we were doing because we just came from church. But I was eating out here the other day. And bowed our, we bowed our heads to thank the Lord for our meal. And the waitress came and she interrupted while we were praying. And she started talking and she started putting down the plates. And she acted like, man, this is just a bother. You're taking up my time here because you took time to pray. Well, this is the way things are going in America today. We are just not thankful for what we have. And so we keep pushing God out of the way. And what's happening right here in California, eventually that's going to spread to the rest of the nation because people today just do not realize where our freedoms come from. We don't respect God for the blessings that he gives us. And more and more every single day, we're no longer thankful. And even Christian people are caught up in this because we are so busy in this dog-eat-dog world today that we're so worried about getting ahead that we don't stop and thank God for everything that he's given God has given us the health and the strength to work and to make these things. And he deserves the honor and the thankfulness and the praise for that. Now take your Bible again here and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're looking uh, at the Bible tonight. We're studying the Bible. So let's just look at some more of what God has to say about this. If you find Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is speaking in this chapter to the children of Israel. He's preparing them before they go into the promised land. And he has some things to say about remembering what God has done. If you look at chapter 8, verse number 13, it says, And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, this is Moses speaking, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of a rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. Now, if you look at those first verses, that sounds a whole lot like where America is today. We have abundance, we have been multiplied, and yet we've forgotten God. Our religious leaders came here for religious, or our forefathers rather, uh, came here for religious freedom. They endured tough times. They went through some terrible circumstances. But they continued to pray. They read the scriptures. And they honored God. And you know what God did? He prospered the nation. He blessed it. But now that we have all these things in America today, we're in denial of where it came from. And so we're saying exactly what the children of Israel were about to say. My power and the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth. You remember that revisionist history that I told you about before uh, is being taught in our uh, high schools today? In our our school textbooks, I think even even in in the lower grades, they've taken out all the references to God in the celebration of Thanksgiving. And so in the high school and other textbooks today where it talks about Thanksgiving, they talk about that first Thanksgiving where the pilgrims uh, brought in their harvest. They'd made it through, you know, through the, some really tough times. And they sat down and they gave, thank, gave thanks. And you know who they say they gave thanks to? The Indians. They thanked the Indians. So we deny 
what God gives. But we need to be thankful because it's God who's given us the power to get wealth. So these are two attitudes that people have. I deserve what God gives or I deny that God even gave it. But there's yet a third attitude and this is the one that comes from a heart that's filled with the Spirit. This attitude says, I desire to give back to God. Well, how do you give back to God? God doesn't need our money, does he? There's nothing that we can do for God that can make him any happier than he is because God is already supremely happy. So how do you give back to God? Well, I think you start by acknowledging, as Moses told the children of Israel, that it's God who has given us all things. We start with that, and we thank him for that. But thanksgiving has feet on it. Did you know that? True thanksgiving really has feet on it. That means there needs to be a demonstration that we're thankful to God. So let's go back to that parable once again in Luke chapter 18. Remember I said, now hold on to this thought about that rich farmer who had the bountiful crop, but he sorrowed because he didn't have room to put it all. And so rather than thanking God and sharing with others, he was just sad that he didn't have room. Let me go back to another comment that Matthew Henry made. He says, it was folly for him to hoard up what he had and then to think it well bestowed. There will I bestow it all, as if none must be bestowed upon the poor, none upon his family, none upon the Levite and the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, but all in a great barn. How do you give back to God? Well, you do it by displaying God's character. And isn't that what this is all about? The demonstration of the Holy Spirit? How do we show the Holy Spirit lives within us? We begin to display God's character. Well, what's God's character? Well, God was somebody who who gave us the very best that he could give. He, He gave his only begotten son. And so the way that we give back to God is begin to give things to other people, to help other people, to share some of what we have with them. Now, I said, God God doesn't need money. He certainly doesn't need that. God doesn't personally need money, but his work does. God's work needs money. And so he's told us that we need to tithe. We need to bring our offerings. And as we do that, that's a demonstration of our appreciation to God. So God doesn't need the money, but his work does. And as we bring our tithes and offerings in, that enables us to preach the gospel of Christ and to spread the good news all around the world. So sharing the gospel with others, that's a way that we give back to God. And if we can't do it personally in all these other places out there, we can help do that by bringing in our tithes and offerings to our church. And folks, it is really it is really the height of ingratitude to receive from God and receive from God and receive from God and never give anything back to him. Now, I was talking to a, a lady on visitation the other day, and she said, does your church require a tithe? Now, I get to ask a lot of questions when you're talking to people about the Lord, and that kind of surprised me at first. The first question she asked me, does your church require a tithe? And I said, well, yes. Well, we do teach that tithing is the Lord's command, and Christians ought to tithe. And she said, well, I don't have the money to tithe. Uh, I suppose that was a a lead-in to an excuse of why I can't go to church, because I can't afford to tithe. And so I said, well, here's the thing. When Jesus saves you, you learn that God does more with nine-tenths than you could ever do with ten-tenths. But the tithe is not all that we give. When we give back to God, we give of ourselves, we give our service, we give time, we give our bodies. All of that's giving back to God. So we need to be thankful to the Lord. And a person who has a 
heart filled with the Holy Spirit. He, he understands this better than anyone in the world. Everything belongs to God anyway. That's first. Everything belongs to God. And you learn you can never outgive God. The more that you give, the more God gives. Now, perhaps some of you might need to question your attitude and thankfulness. Do you have a desire to give back to God? I think there's a lot of Christians who will bring tithes and offerings to church, but they simply do it out of obligation. You ought to give more than just out of obligation. You ought to have a desire to give back to God because of the thankfulness that you have in your heart. So that's the attitude in thanksgiving. And the proper one, I desire to give back to God. Now let's go on and let's finish with this. The measure of your fortitude in thanksgiving. There are different levels that measure where you are in thanksgiving. And what you have to do here, you have to get all the way up to level number three that we're going to talk about that tells that you are a spirit-filled Christian. Now, level number one is the easy level. And this is where you give thanks for good things in the past. See, when you're sailing along smoothly and everything's going fine, that's when it's easy to give thanks to God. If you've been ill and you've just gotten over that illness, well, that's a good time to be thankful, and it's easy to be thankful. If you've been in financial problems and worried about financial matters, and all of a sudden you get a raise at work, you get some bills paid off, well, when you get all that done, then it's easy to be thankful for God. So you thank Him for the things that He's already done. And certainly we ought to do that. And and as we do that, remember that it's God who takes care of these things. Don't forget to thank him for that. Well, that's the easy part because you're thanking him for what's already happened. But you get to level two and level two is hard because level two is when you give thanks to God for better things in the future. Now, it's harder to thank God for things that are in advance. I mean, advance of, of, of him actually do anything I mean, you believe and you accept by faith that God's going to do something. And this is why this is a little bit harder. It's because this requires your faith. You don't know what's coming, but you expect God will bless. God will take care of your need. God's always there. And so you can thank him in advance for what you already know that he's going to do. Jesus demonstrated that type of thankfulness when he raised Lazarus from the dead. He walked up to that tomb, walked up to the tomb of the dead man, and he told them to take the stone away. And we read in John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. So Jesus already knew what would happen. He knew that when he told them to roll the stone away, and when he would speak to Lazarus, that Lazarus would come out of that grave. Well, we might ask the question, why does Jesus pray about this? I mean, why, why does he even bother to do that? Well, Jesus had purposely limited his power while he was here on earth. And so he prays to the Heavenly Father, and he thanks him in advance because he knows that the, whatever the Father is going to do is based upon his obedience, his perfect obedience to God's will and to God's way. So he thanks God in advance because he knew that Lazarus would come out of that tomb. Well, that kind of thankfulness requires a greater spiritual maturity. Because here we are, we're thanking God for unknown favors, for unrealized blessings, but we truly do expect that God is going to do this for us. Well, that's a harder type of thanksgiving. But level number three 
is when you really reach maximum level of spiritual maturity. Level three is the hardest because this is when you thank God for bad things in the present. Are you able to thank God for bad things in the present? Can you thank God when you're in the midst of some kind of pain or tribulation? Can you thank God when your mom or your dad is dying and it looks like there's no hope? Can you thank God when a child has been taken away from you? Can you thank God for serious accidents and different harms that come? Can you thank God if you're facing bankruptcy when failure and financial failure seems to be imminent? Can you thank God for that? Or could you even thank God when physically yourself, you're sick, you've got some terrible disease, something's going wrong? Can you thank God in all of those times? Well, when you're filled with the Spirit and you begin to thank God in those times, that's a demonstration of greater, greater filling. A few weeks ago, I pointed you to a, a Bible passage in Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk, and I said, now, I need everybody to underline this in your Bible. So you probably already got it underlined. I know everybody obeys everything that I say. Uh, but Habakkuk chapter 3, let me read it to you, verses 17 and 18. It said, Although the fig tree shall not blossom... Neither shall fruit be in the vines, and the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stall. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Do you remember what I said about that? I gave you my translation of this, and I said, Though I lost my job last, last week, and my rent is due next week, Though my son took the car out last night and ran over a fire hydrant, though the two-year-old fell and broke out her two front teeth, though my mother-in-law is coming to stay for three weeks, though my gout and my bursitis is acting up, yet still I will rejoice in God because he is my salvation. That's the kind of thankfulness that Job had. When God allowed Satan just to to batter Job from one side, up one side and down the other, he was still thankful and never doubted God. His flocks and his herds were destroyed. His servants were taken captive. His sons and his daughters were killed. His financial empire was completely gone. And yet Job said, the Bible says, In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. In fact, when his wife protested, she said, Job, you can't go on like that. Uh, you, you can't thank God for this. You, you've got to curse God and die. Do you remember what Job said to her? He said, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did Job did not Job sin with his lips. Paul was one who was able to give thankfulness in, in all kinds of trials. He's the one who wrote 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. How could Paul write things like that? I mean, here's Paul. He suffered shipwreck and beatings. Uh, He'd been stoned and left for dead. Later, he was thrown in prison. He was in the midst of present trials, even while he wrote this verse. And yet he was able to thank God. How can he do that? It's because he's filled with the Spirit. It's the demonstration of filling with the Spirit. 
But folks, if you can only thank God when you're up on the mountaintop and things are sailing along smoothly, and you can't thank God for the deepest valley that you're in, then you haven't yet learned what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So we have this inward experience of filling. We have the upward exaltation of filling. And those are demonstrations of the Holy Spirit's presence. Now, let's finish tonight's lesson with this thought. If not for Christ in your life, it is foolish to be thankful for everything. Romans 8, 28, all of you know it says, For all things work together for, God, for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. We know the verse. But if a person doesn't know Christ, all things do not work together for their good. Now, a person who doesn't know Jesus, every day that he goes on in that state, not knowing Christ, every sin that he commits compounds, and it just increases the eternal punishment in the fires of hell. So you could never go to a lost person, and I've seen this happen so many times. People try to comfort those that are lost by saying, well, everything's going to work out all right. Everything will turn out fine. Well, you can't tell a lost person that because... First of all, he doesn't really believe that anyway. And you can't even convince a lot of Christians of that, that everything's going to be all right because God's in control. So how are you going to convince a lost man of it? But here's the thing. When you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you've been filled with the Spirit of God, you know that Christ ever lives to make intercession for you. And he's able to take every bad experience that you ever go through, and somehow God's going to strengthen your faith through that, And then he also promises, I will reward you for your patient endurance. Then you know that you can give God thanks for anything. If you truly believe that, you can give God thanks for anything because you do know exactly what he says. If you patiently endure it, God will reward you and he will work it out for your good. So we just continue to exalt him. We praise him. No matter what comes into our life, we just continue to thank God. So Paul says, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've covered here two ways of demonstration of the Spirit, inward experience and upward exaltation. And next week we're going to come to verse number 21, and this one might puzzle you a little bit, but we're going to talk about verse number 21 and find out another way that the filling of God's Spirit is demonstrated in a Christian's life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father... Uh, We do thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort that we receive from it, knowing, Lord, that you are in charge of all things. And no matter what comes into our lives, no matter how bad things are, if we just learn to be thankful that you turn everything around and it always works out for our good, and help us to realize, Lord, that that promise is only to those who know you. No one who doesn't know you has a promise that things will work out fine. So, Lord, we just praise your name. We thank you. We give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.